Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. So glad to be with you today. And if you're new here, thanks for, for being here. My name is Dan Halleck, and I'm one of the elders here. And just thankful to worship with you today, and I'm glad we're here together. If you've got your Bible with you, go ahead and open up to John 17, verse 1. We're looking at a really special part of Scripture here uh, in which Jesus has just finished his last meal with his closest disciples. Uh, it's the night before his crucifixion. And after the meal, he proceeds to pray for his disciples as well as for everybody who would ever trust in him for eternal life. And it's been a few weeks since we looked at this passage. And so uh, we're going to start by reading through John 17, 1 to 19. I'll read that out loud. And then we'll focus on verses 11 to 19. <clears throat> when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they've received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I'm glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. It's the word of the Lord. There's a lot to cover today, so um, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we thank you for giving us this word today. You know what we need. And we just thank you, God, for loving us and for the good news that we have in you, that we can have friendship with you and not be enemies with you. We thank you for 
reaching out to us and living the life we couldn't live, a life of perfect obedience and for dying on the cross as our substitute and for rising again, God. You are awesome. And we thank you for giving us this word today. We ask that you would work uh, by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. Pray for those of us in all different circumstances who've come here today and you know just how to take this word and to use it uh, for each one of us in the way that we need. We ask that you would purge us today of our brokenness, of our sinfulness, of our inherent uh, desire to look everywhere for answers except for you. We ask that you would give us your joy and fill us with your joy, Lord. Please protect us from the evil one now and for all on our campus right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so we already spent several weeks looking at verses 1 to 10 uh, in which Jesus says that before the creation of the world, God the Father gave him a people to rescue. And Jesus rescued these people by coming for them. And these people are rescued by trusting in him, by believing that he is the Messiah. He is the Lord in human flesh who died on behalf of his people and who raised them to new life with him when he rose from the dead. And he says that to all who believes this, he gives eternal life. And he describes eternal life real simply in verse 3. He says, eternal life is knowing God. It is being in a peaceful friendship with the one true God. And we know that there is only one true God, and we sometimes call him the Trinity. He's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And specifically here, as God the Son, Jesus, who left heaven and came to earth and took on human flesh, the Son here is praying to the Father. In the verses 1 to 10, Jesus has only one request in all of that section. He just requests that the Father would glorify him with the glory that he had before the world existed. So this means that Jesus is asking God the Father to lift him up for the whole universe to see that Jesus is the most valuable treasure of the universe, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's not just something that Jesus says. That's not just something John the Baptist says. This is what God the Father says. And now in verses 11 to 19, Jesus continues to pray specifically for uh, those disciples who were with him at the time. And much of the prayer can be applied to us as well because Jesus is praying for his people, his church. And here Jesus asks God the Father to do three things for his people. And then he gives them a reason why he wants him to do those things for his people. So before we look at those three things that he asked the Father to do, let's first look at the reason Jesus gives for asking him to do these things. In verse 13, Jesus prays to the Father but now I am coming to you and these things I speak in the world that, or so that, they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. See that? The reason, Jesus is saying, the reason for everything he said at the Last Supper and the reason that he prays for his disciples now after supper is so that they might have everlasting joy. 
And it's not just any type of joy. Jesus says it's his joy, the joy that belongs to him. This is the joy that he wants for his followers. And it's the same joy he wants for you and me to have as we trust in him. Isn't that amazing? This is God's agenda, (laughs) our joy. Praise God. What does this tell us about God? That according to Jesus' prayer here, God intervenes in our broken lives to glorify himself and show him as awesome, and at the same time, by doing that, to bring us eternal joy. This means that the one true God who really exists, the living God who exists in our universe and outside of our universe right now, who's in control and all power of all things, what he wants for you is joy. And he wants you to have that now and for all eternity. That's incredible. Because <laughs> that's what the most powerful person, the most powerful being in existence wants for you and for me. And the fact that Jesus gives to his church his own joy, it, it, what it does is it reveals another layer of what Jesus accomplished when he died on the cross to save us. See, we know that Jesus became our sin and he suffered on the cross so that we don't have to suffer God's wrath after this life in eternal hell. That should fill us with joy (laughs) no matter what we're going through right now. And on the cross, Jesus forgave us for our sin, meaning he no longer holds our sin against us because of what he's done for us. And he's removed our shame and he's removed our real guilt and shame that we have for our sin. He's taken away. And he's taken it away forever. That's another reason to rejoice in Jesus. What I also want us to see is that on the cross, Jesus unites us to himself. You jump into Romans 6 and other passages in the New Testament, uh, uh, Galatians, what we see is that when we trust in Jesus, he baptizes us into his death. He baptizes us into his resurrection. He baptizes us into his righteousness. He baptizes us into his joy so that now what is his is ours, okay? His death is our death. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, it's Christ who lives in me. His resurrection is our resurrection. His righteousness is our righteousness. His joy is our joy now and forever. And so what that means is the joy that Jesus enjoys in fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, the joy that Jesus has as he uh, truly experiences perfect righteousness and perfect love and perfect victory over Satan and sin and hell and death, this is now our reality through faith in Jesus. And this is our joy when we trust in him. And what Jesus prays here is he says, I pray that this joy, my joy, the joy that's in me, would fulfill the disciples. And this word fulfill means in one sense that Jesus wants it to satisfy us, right? But in another sense, it means that Jesus wants his joy to enter us and to permeate through us, to spread through every part of us, to reach every part of us until 
every aspect of our being, our mind, our, our soul, our body is filled with the joy that is in him. I saw a video on YouTube recently uh, where this guy, I'm, I think we have some pictures here, where this guy took a uh, roasted chicken and he placed it in a plexiglass box. Anybody else see this video? Okay, some of you did. Okay, good. <laughs> and then he filled this box with l- pink liquid silicone so that it covered every part of the chicken. And then he let the silicone harden for a few days. And then later he came back and he carefully removed the silicone from the chicken. Okay. And so now he had a perfect mold of this oven roasted chicken. And then he decided to fill that chicken mold with liquid milk chocolate. And he put it in the refrigerator for a few days to harden. A few days later, he removed the pink silicone mold and he discovered that he had an exact replica of the original roasted chicken except that it was made of milk chocolate. And this chocolate chicken had all the same wrinkles in the skin as the original chicken. It had the same wings, has the same bones, same everything because the chocolate came in and it totally filled every minute detail of that mold. It's kind of a funny illustration, but you guys, this is exactly what Jesus wants to do with his joy in us. He wants to fill us with the joy that's in him so that it permeates us, so that it goes into every part of our being, so that it moves into every little hidden part of our lives, so that our joy is exactly what his joy looks like. He wants it to take over every little empty space in us, and he wants to fill it with his joy, okay? This is why he uses the word fulfill. He wants us to be totally filled so that we're fully filled, fulfilled. We're fully filled with his joy. That's why he gives us instructions in his word and specifically here at this Last Supper to show us the path to joy. Whatever your circumstances are today, uh, I pray that you would turn your eyes to Jesus and celebrate the joy that is in him, okay? May you and I repent from looking to ourselves or to our careers or to other people or to our finances to give us joy because they can't. They never will. May the Lord help us. May we help one another to continue to turn our eyes to Jesus as the greatest treasure. As, as our eternal joy. Because with God's help, let's, let's seek to be filled and fully filled with the supernatural divine joy that originates in God himself. That is Jesus' prayer for us. It's incredible. This prayer originates with him. This is his prayer for you and me in John 17, 13. Now, um, Jesus' desire to give us joy then. This is, what, this is kind of where I'm going. That's the foundation. This is what motivates him to ask three specific requests for us in this prayer. Um, in verses 11 and 19, Jesus asked the Father to do three things. He asks the Father to keep us in his name, to keep us from the evil one, 
and to sanctify us in the truth of his word. Okay, so we're gonna take each one of those one at a time. Uh, First, Jesus asked God the Father to keep the disciples in his name. Look at verses 11 and 12. He says, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them. Guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So Jesus acknowledges here that he will soon be leaving the world, which was still in rebellion against him at that time, and which is still in rebellion against him today. And he's saying that he would be in their lives, hunger be with them, and go to questions from the Pharaoh's father and Eastman were intensively for God means set apart it means his own cat it means totally from everything else And Jesus calls upon God the Father in his holiness to keep the disciples in his holy name. And several times in this passage, Jesus has said that God the Father gave to Jesus these people whom he would save. And remember earlier in, in John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So these people, Jesus' followers, were given to him by the Father. They were called to Jesus by the Father. They were drawn to Jesus by the power of the Father. And then what was the result? Well, we we already read in verse 8 that these disciples believed in him, which subsequently means that God pulled them over from death over to the kingdom of life. And now Jesus asked the Father to keep them there, to keep them in his name. He's asking the Father to hold on tightly to these people whom the Father predetermined to rescue. Jesus is asking the Father to preserve the faith of his followers in the Lord, no matter what their circumstances might be. Jesus is asking the Father to keep the disciples faithful to the gospel, faithful to God's message, and faithful to God's mission to go to the world and spread the gospel. Jesus is asking the Father to keep them saved. And as I've been thinking about this passage the past few weeks, I've been moved by the amazing reality of what's happening here. That Jesus, God the Son, is asking God the Father to keep us saved. This isn't you or me. 
asking God to keep us saved. This is God asking God to keep us saved. How powerful do you think that prayer is? (laughs) Do you think Jesus was uncertain as to whether or not the Father would actually do it, that he would actually keep us saved? No. Remember he already said in chapter 10, 28 to 30, I give them eternal life and they will not perish. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, Jesus' will is the same will as the Father's will because they are one. And his will is to keep his people saved from sin, to keep his people rescued from hell. And nobody, what he says, nobody, not you, not me, not other people, not the devil himself, can snatch us out of God's hand. Amen? (laughs) That's what he says. What this means is that the Father will preserve the faith of all who truly belong to Jesus. Their faith will continue to be a saving faith both during their life on earth and for all eternity in heaven. And what that doesn't mean is that true Christians won't sin. That's not what it says. It also doesn't mean that no Christians will ever stray from the flock. What it means is that true born-again Christians who've been born again of God are truly born again. (laughs) That's what it means. It means they're truly new creations that God gave new desires to for God and for the things of God. And because Jesus has granted them repentance and saving faith, they will persevere in their faith in Christ. And the reason, hear this, for the perseverance isn't because they're super Christians. And it's not because of any merit of their own. It's only because God the Father is keeping them in his holy name. Get that? All glory to God. And we know that God uses a number of methods to keep his people in his name because he appoints means to use to accomplish his purposes. He uses his word in people's lives. He uses the prayers of Christians. He uses church services and community groups and church camps and youth groups. And he tells the leaders of the church to preach and to teach and to exhort and to encourage and to rebuke when necessary, according to Scripture, so that God's church will persevere in the faith. And we can have great peace in the knowledge that God is preserving our faith because that's his will. That's his desire as Jesus continually intercedes for us in heaven. It's incredible what God does for us because he loves us. And in verse 12, Jesus tells the Father that during his time on earth, this is exactly what he's been doing, that Jesus has been keeping the disciples in the Father's name. And he says that he's guarded them, he's lost none of them except Judas, who is the son of destruction, who never belonged to Jesus in the first place. And right in the middle of Jesus' request here, he mentions a very important reason for the preservation of our faith. This reason is a top priority that Jesus has for his church. He says in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you've given me so that they may be one, even as we are one. 
So what is one of the most important reasons why God preserves the faith of his disciples? To make them unified. Okay. So that they might be one, just as the Father and the Son are one. See, the unity, Jesus knows this, the unity that God has in himself is a beautiful and blessed unity. It's a beautiful and blessed reality. And because God is gracious, he wants us to experience that unity too. And so this is what happens when we trust in the gospel of Jesus. Jesus unites us to himself, which we talked about. And at the same time, he adopts us into his family, his church, so that his followers are now united together too, spiritually, forever. This is why we call each other brothers and sisters, right? Obviously, biologically, we're not all brothers and sisters. This is why we do this in church, though, because Jesus has made us into spiritual brothers and sisters, And he wants us to think and act and feel with one spirit, his spirit, with one purpose, despite our many differences and opinions. This also means that, hear this right, what this also means is this, you cannot be united to Jesus and his church, and you cannot be a person who seeks God-glorifying unity in his church unless God the Father keeps you saved. Your enjoyment of God, your enjoyment of his church, your ability to seek unity in the body of Christ is only because the Father is preserving you. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) And in his prayer, Jesus prays at length about this. And it's all over the New Testament, all over the Old Testament. He prays for the unity of his church. So this is going to be a common theme in the coming weeks because Jesus just hits it and hits it and hits it. But his main request here in verses 11 and 12 is that the Father will keep his people saved. He will keep them faithful to the gospel while they continue to live in a world that despises Jesus. And Jesus' second request is that the Father will keep the disciples from the evil one. In verses 14 to 16, Jesus prays, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So Jesus says that he has given the disciples the Father's word, okay? And remember that the Father told Jesus everything he wanted him to tell his people, which was quite a bit. Jesus taught uh, that you and I were created to love the Lord God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strength. And he also said that we were created to love one another with the love of God in us. Jesus said that he came to fulfill God's law, and he told us now to interpret the law through the lens of his death and resurrection. And most importantly, Jesus taught us the gospel. That he, he, he said, I'm going to be hung on a tree. I'm going to die for the sins of the world. And I'm going to rise again on the third day to save my people. And as he already mentioned in verse 8, Jesus' uh, disciples believed this. They trusted in him. The disciples were in the world. God pulled them out of the world and brought them into his kingdom. What that means is they're no longer enslaved to the world. They're no longer enslaved to Satan. They're no longer doomed to hell. They're no longer 
slaves of unrighteousness. And as a result of this being transferred into God's kingdom, Jesus says, the world hates you now. We are the world's enemies. And he talks about the disciples in verse 14 saying that the world has hated them because they're not of the world. Just like Jesus is not of the world, so the world hated Jesus. And in verse 16, Jesus says it again. He repeats himself verbatim and says of his disciples, they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. This world is not your home. You don't belong to it. What this means is that in the spiritual realm, Jesus has already made a separation. He's already separated his followers from the world. So there are two groups that exist. Spiritually, there's those who belong to God in Christ and those who belong to the world and who are doomed to go to hell. They're cursed. They're under the curse still because they've rejected Jesus. But the moment that we trust in the gospel of Jesus, God pulls us into life, eternal life with him. And so if we're separated spiritually in the invisible realm, uh, then one might think that God would also want to separate us physically from the world too. But actually Jesus says that's what he doesn't want for us. In verse 15, he prays to the Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So God could have pulled us out of the world physically at the exact same time that he pulled us out spiritually, but he didn't. And that's because he wants to use Christians living in the world to pull more people out of the world and into the kingdom of eternal life. Okay? And on the timeline of eternity, we have a very short time to do this. And so the work of loving others with our actions and specifically with the message, the good news of Jesus is urgent work, especially since none of us in here know how much time we have left. But God has given to us, uh, those of us in his church, the privilege of leaving our comfort zones and putting us places to reach the lost in the exact same way that he left his comfort zone of heaven and came to us to reach us who were lost. And we do this together. This is our mission together. As we pursue this mission together of reaching the lost, loving the lost as we love the Lord, as we do this as a church family alongside other Christians from other local churches, Jesus asked the Father, protect them from the evil one. And he prays this because the devil wants to hurt God. He's already lost the war. He knows that. And so his agenda now is how can he disable God's agenda and God's people from doing any eternal good in the meantime? The devil wants to hurt you. The devil wants to hinder God's rescue mission. He wants to hinder you from being part of the rescue team. And he will employ every tactic, every person he can to discourage you from doing God's mission for you. He will slander you. He's called the accuser. He will accuse you. He will try to scare you. He will tempt you to stumble and fall into sin. He will tell you 
You're not savable. You're not forgivable. The devil will try to damage our church, family, by spreading gospel among us, by spreading lies, by creating division and discord among us. He tries to nourish bitterness in our hearts toward one another, and he will try to use you to do evil. The devil will try to make the world look better and more satisfying to you than Jesus. And if he could do that, then he knows he can distract you from God's mission for you. And then you will put all your time and energy and money into things that don't really matter. And thus, he leads you astray very craftily. As long as you and I are alive in this world, we're fair targets for the devil. And we will never attain a level of holiness that makes us no longer a target for him. And this is why Jesus prays for us that the Father will protect us from the evil one. And he will. And because of the perfect blood of Jesus shed on our behalf, we know that all who trust in Jesus are protected in eternity from Satan and from God's wrath. But we also need God to protect us in our day-to-day lives. And so a couple questions as you look at your own life. You might just think about these this week. What methods might the devil be using in my life to hurt my relationship with God? What methods might the devil be using in my life to hurt my relationship with God's church? And how might I be making myself vulnerable to the attacks of the devil. See, we know that God's protecting us from the evil one in the invisible realm, and thank God he does that. But this morning, I I also want you to think about any defensive means that God has given you to use to protect yourself from evil. And it's probably going to vary from person to person depending on our circumstances, but let me give you two examples of what I'm talking about. First, We know Satan wants to mess with us. He wants to get into our heads. He wants to change the desires of our heart. And one of the means he uses to do that is media and technology. Okay? It does not mean all media and technology is evil. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he uses media and technology. It's interesting. We think we're safe in our homes. He gets in there, right in there with us through the little cable on our wall. Right? So in a very practical way, I would say this. How are you filtering the content that you take in on your TV and on your computer and on your tablet and on your phone? I'll tell you the same thing. I used to tell all the parents of the teenagers, I encourage you to proactively protect yourself and your loved ones by installing an internet filter to filter out evil content so he can't even get to you. Go to Google, search for a free internet filter. It'll list lots of free filters you can use to protect your mind and your heart and, and your family. That's just a simple defensive step we can take. Another way to protect yourself from evil is by asking this question. Do the people that I hang out with most love Jesus and the Bible? That's not the same thing as asking, do you, do you only hang out with Christians? You should be around non-Christians. That's not what I'm saying. You should be around non-Christians. You should have non-Christian friends. The question is, 
Do the people you hang out with most love Jesus and his word? How can you tell? I've got about, man, a lot of Facebook friends and probably all of them say they're Christian, okay? How can you tell? Is there fruit in their life though? Your closest friends are gonna have the greatest influence on how you think and what you say and how you act. And so if you wanna grow in your love for Jesus and his word, then make your closest friends people who wanna grow in their love for Jesus and his word. Because they're influencing you. But if you're hanging out with people, even people who claim to be Christians, this goes for elementary school all the way up. If you're hanging out with people who cause you to think bad thoughts, who cause you to think impure thoughts and to lust, if you're hanging out with people who cause you to doubt the word of God, or to hate others in your heart, or to worship this world and the things of it, or if you're hanging out with people who tempt you to get drunk, or to do anything that God hates, then leave those people. Leave them. Do not be more faithful to people than to God. What can they do to you? Nothing. (laughs) What can God do to you? Everything. And God loves you, and he's got your back. Yeah, Jesus wants us to live in the world, and he wants us to pursue those who belong to the world, but he doesn't want us to corrupt ourselves in the process, right? So we've got to know ourselves, and we've got to know the tactics of the devil. And this leads us to the third thing, then, Jesus prays for his disciples. He asked God the Father to sanctify Christians in the truth of his word as they live in the world. Okay, so in verses 17 and 19, he prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So Jesus prays that as we live in the world, the Father would at the same time sanctify us in the truth. So to sanctify something means to purify something from sin, to purify it from its blemishes, to make something holy, to set something apart from everything else. And so Jesus describes this fascinating tension here of living in an unholy world and pursuing the lost people in it, while at the same time we stay pure and are increasingly purified and made more holy by the truth of God's word. This is what God wants for us. And Jesus modeled this perfectly for us in the way that he lived on earth. Jesus loved God's word. He loved the Lord. He prayed. He spent time fellowshipping with with, uh, God-oriented friends. He obeyed God's commands. And at the very same time, he befriended sinful people. And he loved them. And he courageously called them to repent from sin and to trust in the Lord. Right? You guys, what this means for you and me, if we're Christians, is that you and I 
cannot abandon lost people and hide ourselves away from the world. And at the very same time, you and I cannot abandon God and his word. This is the tension we live with. And Jesus says that the way that God sanctifies us while we're living in this evil world is by immersing us in the truth. Okay? And what is the truth? His word. That's what he says. His Bible is the truth. And so God makes us holy like him by working through the Holy Spirit to change us while we read the word, while we hear the word. And if you're here today and you're thinking about this Christian thing, you don't know what to think, I want you to see what Jesus says. He cares about the truth, about everything. He does not say that God makes us like him by immersing us in a book that is filled with made-up stories and happy thoughts and moral lessons. Jesus says that God sanctifies us by his word, which is completely true and is sharper than any double-edged sword. That's how he sanctifies us, by the power of his spirit. And at the heart of the truth of his word is the gospel of truth that declares to you and me every day that we are doomed on our own today, but that God loves us and he rescues forever all who trust in Jesus because he died to take away our sin, but he rose again and he's alive right now in heavenly glory. He's interceding for us as our friend and our Lord and he's coming again. Okay. God uses this gospel message to sanctify, to make holy you and me. And that's what he wants for us. In verse 18, Jesus says that just as the Father sent him into the world, so also Jesus sends us into the world. Mission. We're on mission with Jesus. Jesus has given you and me the mission to love God and others, to take the gospel, the light, into the dark world. And then in verse 19, again, we see the tension again. He says that he consecrates himself as our holy sacrifice so that we might be sanctified in truth. And what you see is that Jesus keeps bringing it back to the cross. We can see it more clearly from our vantage point than they did at that point because they hadn't gone to the cross yet or seen Jesus on the cross. But at the cross, Jesus brings together this tension that we see and feel between holiness and this wicked world in which we live. See, without Jesus on the cross, you and I could not be saved or sanctified. There would be no use immersing ourselves in, in God's word and in this good message if Jesus had not completed the work that gives us the good message. The word, the gospel, simply points us to the reality of the finished work that Jesus did. And so what we, we do is we saturate ourselves in this word of our Lord's finished work, and God uses it to save us and to sanctify us together. And also at the cross, at the same time, Jesus spreads out his arms and he reaches out to rescue those who love evil and hate God. Those who are complicit with the devil. Everyone, just like many of us were, doomed to eternal death had we not turned to Jesus. And Jesus commands us to go into the darkness and to rub shoulders with people who don't like God and to love them 
and to declare his good news to them. And through this gospel, this good news, he will call his sheep to himself. They will come to him and he will never cast them out. Those are his words. So what this means is that whether we're being sanctified by the truth of God's word or whether we're searching for the lost or whether we're being preserved in the faith by God or whether we're being protected from the evil one, the gospel work of Jesus Christ permeates all of it and his works are empowered by the Holy Spirit in our lives as he covers us with the merits of our crucified and resurrected Lord. And all of this, Jesus prays here for the fullness of our eternal joy and for his eternal glory. Is that awesome? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us this word and so much here, God. It's, it's, it just feels like, I don't know, we could just camp out on this for a week, but we thank you for it. I pray that you would use it in each of our lives today and this week to, to turn us to you. And God, we need your help to be filled with joy. This is not something we can manufacture on our own. Please turn our hearts and our thoughts to you. Give us hearts of thankfulness. Um, uh, move in our lives in a real powerful way. Give us moments of sweet intimacy with you. Help us to do our part, God, to have the discipline to open up the word and to experience fellowship with you. Not so that we can be saved, but because you have saved us. Because <laughs> you're awesome. Help us, Lord, to see you over and over and over again. It's the greatest treasure. It's way better than anything this world has to offer. And you're way greater than any of our greatest fears or worries or really hard circumstances that we're going through. Thank you for conquering sin and death and hell for us. My prayer is for those in this room and those who may hear this message someday, God, that you would work in their hearts, that you would use your message of love and grace to call them to you, that you would make them born again, and that you would hold on to them now and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.